Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is an underappreciated legend, in my opinion, who's worked on uh, game franchises such as Quake, Portal, Left 4 Dead, World of Warcraft, and Metroid Prime. I'd like to welcome David Kirsch, aka Zoid, aka Zoida San. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, welcome to thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the Zoida San, did you take me through that that meeting when he when he dropped that bomb on you? Was it an, an out, of, out of body experience when he said it? Like a bit of a did did he just say what I think he said? It was a little bit of that. We were <laughs> we were doing a video conference with Nintendo at Retro. This is probably late 2001, mid 2001, and late 2001 sounds right. And we were going over. No, it might have been 2002 because yeah, because this was I think just before E3. And um, we were talking about some, you know, we were going over the, we had most of the game blocked out by then. And we were, and I had a couple little boss designs I did. I did like the, the incinerator drone, which every, every speedrunner hates, um, and a few <laughs> other ones. And we were going, I think Miyamoto had a question about the incinerator drone. And so he mentioned, oh, Zoid designed that. And so he turned to me and he said, you know, gave me the question. And, and then I think I answered him and he said, thank you, Zoido san. And I'm like, did he just, did, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, so I, was, I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, that's, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was neat. And uh, uh, it was just, it was cool to be part of that conference and everything, you know, cause I mean, he's basically the best game designer in the world. Right. So yeah. My, our first example, I remember when he first, he came over to visit retro. This is when we had the first prototype of prime running. It's some of the, uh, the uh, space pirate frigate at the start of the game. And he play tested it. And I remember him in the first five minutes, he named like a dozen things that should be fixed and they were all right. You know, like the scale feeling of Samus and, you know, some of the control stuff. And he just, you could just tell that he knew exactly what he was talking about and just, you know, brilliant, brilliant designer. So were you aware of some of this stuff before he pointed it out and you just hadn't gotten around to fixing it? Or was it a fact that he pointed it out and then you were like, ah, oh, I think it's a little of both. Um, mm. I think his his comments on scale, I don't think we were thinking about because uh, uh, when we originally designed level Samus was a little, the camera's a little lower. And he said that he, the first thing he said is you need to make Samus taller. Like you need to scale the world down, right? And if in the, I think in game, the actual camera height is like two meters, right? Which he's right. I think if you look at the suit, I think it's the suit's supposed to be about two meters tall. And he picked up on that immediately. And so it was just interesting to, to, to see that. Um, but I don't remember the other specific stuff, but it was lots of little tiny control and other things that were all just really good notes. So moving, moving the camera by a, a fraction, does that actually take a long time? Just no, something as no. subtle as that? You, yeah, you yeah. just change the Z coordinate, right? Right. So, um, and, uh, but it's something that, it's something... Like it's a very simple thing, but it's it's something you really got to tune to be right because, and it's good that you get it early because a lot of your world design goes around that view, right? Mm. So, um, like uh, a good example of how the uh, the world design is is you know when we built areas in, in Metroid, we did something called blue rooms, which is like this blueprint texture, and when and then I would come in and you know as a gameplay programmer. I would work with some of the designers and I would do a lot of scripting of the puzzles and, and stuff like that. The counter guys would come in. So we get most of the room functioning. And then once it, you know, the base design is done, we then hand that room to the artists. And they loved it because, because the room was mostly functional. 
they knew exactly where the player was going to be looking when they walked in, you know, where they were going to be doing interactives, stuff like that. So they knew where to focus their art, right? Because, mm. you know, they know, oh, the player's going to be looking here when they first walk in the room. And this is where they're going to be, you know, getting the boost, fighting the, or doing the jumps to the boost ball or something so they can focus their art past there. So uh, it works really well. And it, it also, I mean, you know, of course, in game development, if you have a room done and arted and you want to make a change, that's incredibly expensive. Mm. So we wanted to get the functionality of the rooms all done before we set it to the art, right? You know, and of course, we work with artists to, to understand, you know, this room is in the ruins. This is the kind of theme we're going for and stuff like that. So, um, mm. and, and, you know, having, you know, once Miyamoto came in the early prototype and gave us a lot of feedback on view and control and everything we nailed all that stuff down really early which made all that pretty much easier because hmm. i imagine the morph ball would have been the hardest thing in terms of yes yeah scripting it so and... um the morph ball i mean a lot of the morph ball work was done by the the late mark h Hutchison, of course yeah that um, you were I, I worked with... i worked extremely closely with him since I was the senior gameplay programmer and he was the player control camera programmer. So he did all the player controls and worked on like the morph ball transition camera. Um, and actually, I'm sure, you know, he wrote a wonderful book and then yeah, he published on was published just after he passed away on all the work he learned about the camera systems. Um, and, uh, you know, so I worked a lot very closely with him and, you know, uh, like one of the one of the my favorite things we did with him was you know we came up with the 2d view for the morph ball puzzles right you morph and you roll in and then the camera switches to the 2d side view and you bomb your bombs and stuff and we were trying to figure out how how do we do the camera to follow the ball and he came up with uh, what he calls a surface camera so we have a surface outside there and the camera slides along the surface and has a set of springs that follows the ball so it does it smoothly and so you can define the surface area of the camera so you can control the view and you can do stuff like different zooms and everything. And, and it was really cool. And that was one, he had so many camera systems. He had uh, the surface camera, he had the morph ball camera, uh, which uh, followed the ball. So the way that the third party, so when you turn the morph ball, right, there's the camera comes out of Samus, you turn to the ball. And then what the camera is on is it's actually, the way you think about it, it's like a parachute. And so the ball's here and the camera's the parachute there and you know, the lines of the parachute are springs. So if the morph ball goes behind something, like here's a glass case and it goes behind, actually camera, goes behind it. So it's partially occluded there. Hmm. Some of the springs of the parachute will pull. So the camera will turn to follow the ball, but the springs take time. So if the morph ball goes quickly there, the camera will fall, will, will move a little bit, but then follow the ball there. So if you go behind a post, the camera won't snap. It'll take time. But if you go past the post, it'll catch the ball on the way out. And that was one of the, the innovations he did. And because, and, you know, like a lot of games, like WoW does this all the time. If you walk in front of a cluter, the camera immediately zooms in on you. Yeah, and then yeah. as soon as the cluter's gone and it dry, it's very disconcerting, right? And so he came up with a really amazing solution for that. And if you hide behind the post, eventually the springs will pull the camera in to you right by the post. So it's a really cool system. But yeah, so working with him, I worked with all those different systems, right? Because I was scripting, the I scripted probably more than half the puzzles in the game, working with the designers and I was doing the implementation. And so I was working a lot of closely with him on the camera systems, like 
you know, when you bomb into uh, a slot, how does the camera look from that slot? Um, you know, like the three slots above the, the bowling puzzle room where you do the bowling, the, there's a specific camera. When you pop in, there's a specific camera position that gets activated to see all three slots and stuff like that. And those were the systems I worked with him to make all that work. So, um, yeah, and, and probably speaking of a gameplay programming, like he was focused on cameras. My, you know, that was his big work contribution. I swear, my biggest contribution in the game is doors. <laughs> well, doors. It, it hides memory, doesn't it? Or yeah, oh yeah, it hides loading, and just just the way they work, and and you know, there's so many systems dependent on them, and so I spent so much time on just doors, and you know, we came up with the you know, shoot it in the blue, like force field goes away to let you know acknowledgement that the door is going to open, mm. but of course, you know, it's we have to wait for the GameCube to actually load the area behind it, and then uh, do that, and so there's just doors, and then, you know, we had horizontal doors in Metroid 1, so we had those, and we had to figure out how to make those work, and it was just, it just you know, and understanding, uh, trying to help the designers realize, you know, if you have a big, big room, put a longer hallway in front of it, because if they morph down a straight hallway, they're going to get there long before the area is loaded. Mm. Right. So um, there's, there's some examples that like the, the area where you fight Ridley with the, the, the uh, artifact. Um, the artifact temple. Yeah. The artifact temple. Uh, there's a fairly short hallway in front of it. So I don't know if you, when you get there, you're waiting a good 10 seconds sometimes, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is kind of, because that's actually one of the biggest rooms in the game in terms of memory, because it's just huge, right? So um, so those are always challenging. And the the, the triggers too. So um, the way the rooms work is, you know, the, base, the basic game, design of the game is you have area, hallway, area, right? And so you have a big area, you go in the hallway, and as you're going down the hallway, we're throwing away that area. And then as you get near the other end, we load the other one. And so there are triggers we place along the hallways. And a big trick of that is knowing where to put the loading areas. So how far down the hallway should we start loading the other one, right? And so there was a lot of tweaking to try and get that all that working and, and try to get the load times acceptable. So Because um, didn't you get like an open source compression library or something to expand, so, so, so to expand this, this, the room? This saved our bacon. So... One of the problems with uh, the areas is, is we actually, our tools are really cool because uh, an area, you know, consists of, you know, scripts and creatures and textures and collision geometry and everything. And we actually, the tools, when an area, when we were packing it for the disc, we put everything into one big chunk. So the, everything that required to play that area was one load. Mm. Um, and the GameCube had the ability to say, go load this off the disc into this section of memory. Tell us when it's done. Right, so it all's done done asynchronously by the hardware, and uh, the problem was is you know we wanted to compress it because it, it compresses really well because there's a lot of repeated you know texture data and stuff. Mm. The problem is most compression libraries the way it work is you load a compressed version, put it in memory, then you have to uncompress it into another chunk of memory, and you have to throw the compressed copy away. And so you know, say if you get fifty percent compression, that means you can only use about seventy five percent of your memory to load something. Right, because you twenty five percent of it, the compressed copy is still here, and you need another fifty. Yeah, and so um, we came across an open source compression library that supported compress decompressing in the same memory space as the original memory copy. 
So we would say if what the uncompressed size was, allocate that, load the compressed copy into the upper part of the memory. So you have a memory like this, and we load the compressed copy here, and then say uncompress it here, and it would go whoop, and uncompress over the top of the compressed copy until it was done. And so what that does is, is, is you don't have to allocate a different a copy, the compressed copy here, you put it all in the same space, you just load the compressed version in the top, and then it uncompresses from the bottom up over top of the compressed copy until it gets to the end. And that effectively allowed us to almost, you know, inc double the area, the memory we could use for an area. Hmm. Um, and then I remember we contacted the author and said, hey, can we license this? We would like to use this in our games. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, you know, we, we worked out a, a licensing agreement. And, yeah, that, that library saved <clears throat> led us to to really increase the fidelity of the areas and it saved uh memory fragmentation because you only each area can just be allocated you know once you know because memory fragmentation was always a kind of a minor big issue um so very very useful library um i don't remember the name of it but it's probably out there somewhere because so. it, it seems like in Prime 2, you pushed everything to the limit because it's like Prime 1 on steroids in terms of like yes. morph ball puzzles and even the morph areas right and and uh, uh, Mark Hodgson came up with what I call the spindle camera, which is um, like I did a, an encounter in Metroid 2 where the, you're in a tube and you're on morph ball tracks and there's like these arms that come down and try to kick you off. And the oh, camera is yes. falling outside of the tube. That's his spindle camera, right? Because it's on a big spindle yeah. that follows you around. And it's used quite a few times in Prime. I think a couple boss fights use it and everything. That was one of the new cameras he developed for uh, Prime 2. Um, yeah, because we just, you know, once in Prime 1, we, we were still, you know, learning the system. Like the compression library didn't come in until later in the project. So some of the older areas were small because we didn't know how much memory we, we would have. Um, but and then Prime 2, we knew exactly, exactly what kind of things we can limit, how much we can push it, you know, how much we can do, the, you know, the Dark World versions and all that stuff. You know, I remember doing the, the Dark World transitions. Those are all loads that are hiding. You know, when you enter the portal and they see same as zipping along and all, it's all just hiding the load to the other area. Because because the tricky part is, is in Metroid 1, you're in a room, you go into the hallway. As you're going down the hallway, we're unloading that room and loading the next one. Yep. But when you go to the dark world, you're, you're just teleporting from in the same place. So we had to do a transition screen so to unload the area you're in and load the one you're going to. Um, yeah. That would be that. That would have been the same with the elevators as well, right? When you go. So the elevators, um, yeah. So we broke up Metroid One into I think five area, five worlds: ruins, the fire world, Phaeon, magma, Vendorana drifts, phase on, yeah, phase on mines, yeah, impact crater, maybe five, six, In, yeah, yeah, and and the space frigate at the start. So yeah, yeah. And so those were broken up for a couple of reasons. Um, one is. When you're when you're actually moving through the world, we don't. When you walk through a door, we're not actually teleporting. Same as she's actually coordinate-wise, actually physically moving through the environment. We're just loading the environment around her through the through the door loads. So you're, you, it's actually a seamless physics transition, which is why, which is cool because we don't have to worry. Some games when you like walk through a door and they want to move you to a different area, they actually have to physically teleport you, and those can cause bugs, right? Because you're basically changing the coordinates. So it was cool that, and so. But, you know, you can only have worlds that are so much of, of a size, right, until the numbers get too big. And so have, breaking the worlds up into sections like that. Um, also, the elevators uh, let us, the sound system we used for 
the GameCube dev kit did not support dynamic sound loading. And so the, or changing sounds. So the we're changing sound banks during the elevator transitions. So I remember that was a big part of the reason why we put elevators in as well. So, uh, yeah. So there, because there, you know, sounds are dependent on the creatures and everything in the area, and so a lot of sounds are uh, in the sound bank, and that takes a certain amount of memory, and those are changed during the elevator transitions. Right, right. So, so there's a lot of stuff hidden there, and I remember I don't know if Jack mentioned this in his interview, but he did because the the elevator transition sequence are they're not actually levels; they're just hard coded kind of graphic systems, and he did a crossfade in that because he's like, I can do a crossfade here. And if you've watched Samus Arrives as a crossfade of her, he was, he was really excited between the crossfade there because you can't really do crossfades in, in game because just because you're having to render twice. Yeah, yeah. And so, but in the elevator, you got plenty of, you know, just drawing an elevator. So I remember him being really excited when he got the crossfade working. <laughs> Is it true that you removed horizontal doors? from prime two because of the screw attack because of absolutely that is absolutely true yeah um it just the 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 complexity of trying to get samus she just kept getting on the environment right just just the way the doors are done if you screw attack through a horizontal door and also it messed it was it was just a nightmare of bugs so i had to go to the designer and says please i like i I can't fix this. Like the screw attack is an is is an amazing thing, but it's just not compatible with horizontal doors. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they agreed with me, and we we pulled. I think we only had three or four in the game at that point, so they just redesigned the areas to not include them, uh, which is great. I mean, the nice thing is, is without them, you can screw attack through vertical doors. So, <laughs> but so yeah, it, they I were suppose just that would that would have been just an expansion on the morph ball camera in terms of how it pulls back. Yeah, but the motion is insane, right? Yeah, yeah. It's this, it's a super fast horizontal motion, right? And it's doing this too. And so for the do for horizontal door, it's doing you can kind of get to this weird thing where you can bounce in and out, and it just it just draws all kinds of wet. And the, I think the camera would wig out crazy too, because you're going through a door and out, and it's just weird. So um, yeah, uh, the, the cameras, the, the screw attack definitely leveraged a lot of the morph ball camera stuff. Yeah, yeah. But like, also you'd have sections where it would kind of change camera, and then you'd do like the wall jump thing with the screen. Yeah, and that's well. that's using the surface camera, right? That's that's so we have a trigger, and when you enter that volume, and I think when you enter screw attack or morph ball or jump mode or whatever, it pulls the camera back to the surface, and then the surface camera follows you as you go up. So, uh. wow, because even though it's a first person game, you've you've got to always have that camera ready, I suppose. Yeah, honestly, like I don't think people realize that that Metroid Prime has probably one of the most complicated third-person camera systems in a game. Even though it's a first-person, like most of the time you're doing first-person, there's an incredibly complicated third-person camera system in there, mostly because of the morph ball. And of course, in Prime 2, we leveraged it for all kinds of stuff, like the screw attack and sidewall jumps and all that crazy stuff. Hmm. Um, you know, because we, once we built the systems for this camera system, we're like, hey, we can leverage this for all kinds of cool stuff. So, Did you? Because you would have would have uh, scripted quite a few bosses in Prime Two, to yeah, in regards to yeah. morph ball stuff. Yeah, actually, um, most of the designers had learned the scripting system very well at that point. So, other than mostly dealing with you know complicated things or bug fixes most of the bosses were done by the designers of the boss themselves oh wow um yeah so 
Prime one, I was I had to do a lot more of it because I was still developing the system as you know we did. So we had a you know the world world editor rude retro utility development environment, I think, yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, we were developing so it's a it's the the scripting system is a visual scripting system where you can place objects in the world and you can place like a trigger volume and have it send a message to an object to do something, you know, like you know, act, you know, change a morph ball puzzle or rotate this object, you know, we have action controllers and stuff. So it's a very visual scripting system. So you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know. Um, you know, like if you bar morph ball bomb into a bomb slot. And then you have a, a, a trigger in there that's affected by bomb damage. When they bomb again, then that could send a message to, you know, this door, this object over here to rotate up to let the player through or something. That's all done in the scripting engine in the editor. You know, it doesn't require any code. And so um, I worked with uh, Frank LaFuente, who was the lead engineer on Metroid Prime One, on designing the visual scripting system. And at, and as I was training designers with it, um, you know, during Prime One, you know, compressed timeline. A lot of it, I just got to, you know, we got to ship the stuff. So the designers would, I would work with them or just script stuff for them just to get it, get things done. But in Prime 2, they'd become far more familiar with the system. And there were times where they, they built entire puzzles without even me, any involvement with me, which was amazing, right? Because I'd come and see this, oh, well, this is a cool puzzle you built, you know? Um, and then I, you know, I could come in and optimize things and, and fix any little edge case bugs or whatever. Um, I remember one of the one of the last set of things I fixed in Prime One was um, you know we have a lot of we have a cinematic camera system you know like when you go to a save station there's a little cinematic yeah yeah you know when, there's lots you know enter Fernando Drifts as a cinematic so we have a little cinematic camera system that uh, Mark AHH had written and uh, there were a lot of little one frame glitches in that um, just uh -huh. the way times were op things were optimization like because when you switch from one camera to another. You know the the message to move Samus might happen before that one, so you get like the cameras there, and then you see Samus one frame later, and there is a probably a couple dozen little one frame glitches, and I went through and fixed them all because they were driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's those it's those little things you have to really polish to make a game awesome, right? It's it's something a game player probably wouldn't even care about or notice, but it's those things that that I remember really wanting this game to be amazing, so I wanted to fix every little thing. So were you aware of the the special project you were working on or how good it was going to be? Or it wasn't until E3 when you started it was, getting yeah. re the reaction where you were like, okay. Was, so I knew, I, knew, I, I knew that it was going to be an amazing game pretty early. Um, you know, because when we got the, the, the Space Forget mostly functional, it was fun. Hmm. Like playing it was fun. And I'm like, this is really good. You know, and as we started working on the next area, which I think was the ruins and expanding beyond then, um, you know, and, 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 you know, the things are starting to come together, the scripting system and the camera systems and the morph ball and, you know, Andy O'Neill, the late Andy O'Neill's working on the physics for the morph ball and they were coming in and everything just started to come together. You realize, Hey, this game's going to be good, but yeah, you know, and, and it wasn't until E3 that we knew it was going to be great. Right, because the e response at E3 was just phenomenal, right? And it was it was so amazing to see people's reaction to the game and just, wow, this is this is awesome, you know, and and not you know realizing that a first person Metroid can work, and uh, it was it was I remember being in that E3 and it was just one of the best times ever because it was just so much excitement. Well, the pacing of that game is so good. I know you worked on the tutorial. 
And like that's one of the most important parts, I think, of a game, right? Because it's the yeah, first I worked, section. Yeah, I worked, worked with Mark Puccini on that to, 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 you know, that first section where you got to target those the nodes and shoot the force fields and everything. We iterated on that quite a bit. Um, and that, you know, the, the ones that forces you to aim up and all that stuff. And, you know, how do you teach the game, in, you know, in 30 seconds to the player, right? And, yeah. and we really tried to nail that. We built a couple of versions of that before we, we nailed, we got it there. Um, I was going to say with the Parasite Queen, uh, because if you if you lock on to the Parasite Queen, uh, you can fire a missile at its head instead of its belly. Is that right? And it if takes you, if more... you scan it. Scan it, sorry. If you scan it, it switches the, 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 the lock-on point from her center to her face, which takes more damage. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was a design idea to try and encourage players to scan things. Because later bosses tell you stuff if you scan them, you know, like flagrant, bomb the bomb the things under her right like if you scan her it tells you that stuff so mm. um that one was just blatant like we'll make the boss easier if you scan her <laughs> <laughs> and actually that boss fight was interesting because the parasite queen was one of the first boss concepts i think that came out of the design team and we were trying to figure out how to build it and you know we we come up with the lock-on system and the idea we wanted to teach players how to how to lock on and strafe and so and then i came up with the idea of the shields that come down and then to, to, to encourage the player to move with the shield to, so they learn to slide, to, to rotate around with the lock-on. And so I built, the, I scripted the shield system and have it, and that all worked out. Um, and it, 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 it worked out great. Like, I think it really taught players the effectiveness of, of circle strafing, which is, you know, as a guy who worked on Quake, circle strafing's everything in <laughs> FPS games. Of course, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so... So how often would you sit in a meeting and they'd have design ideas and you're looking at it from an engineering point and being like, hmm, I don't know if that's possible. Not that often, actually. A lot of it, a lot of the designers, some of the some of the boss fights. I remember Metroid 2, Mark Puccini really wanted to do a canyon system where you're fighting on top of the of Samus's ship. And uh, I think I don't know if Jack mentioned it, but we we were both we were just like we don't know how we pulled that off technically. Like you know you wanted to fight a boss while you're on the ship flying down a canyon, and we were just like I don't I don't know how we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, I I just remembered that that one was one of the like like I don't think we can do that. We we don't we can't do that. But most of the times it was more it was more understanding their design ideas. And working with them to how do we translate that to work in the game, right? Mm. Um, you know, uh, and how you know, and and a lot of it was approached of, of, of how how does how does the player interact with this? You know, how do how does we communicate to the player the status of, status of what's going on? You know, that's always the, the approach I've taken. Um, you know, like on um, Flagra, the yellow flashing and the red flashing to indicate you know. St you know, damage sections and stuff like that. I remember like the red flash you get when you damage something like a block or a boss or everything. That's a very specific color of red I worked with with the design team to, to, to get the design language consistent through the game, right? Like this is the color something flashes when it is damaged. And so everything in the game has that same red hue when damaged. Um, and so when, when you're working with design, yeah, when you're working with design, and it's it's things like that, right? Like to, to communicate to the player different uh, different statuses quickly. Like, 
Because once you learn that red, because a player, if you see that red, you know, all oh, means I'm doing damage. And the rest of the game works that way. You know, immediately, you know, especially like uh, a good example is on the, the space pirates that are elemental uh, driven. They have to hmm. have the right beam to hit them. They're yep. red if you hit them and yellow if you don't. Right. So it's immediate design language. You know, if you're hurting them or not. Ah, uh-huh. right. Yes. Right. So. And Small, so I remember working. Subtle things. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's these subtle things that players don't think about, but we're trying to communicate that very quickly to the player. Um, and so with boss designs, it's a lot of it is that type of stuff. It's approaching. It's not so much what we can do technically. It's it's you know we can do a lot of almost anything technically, assuming you know within memory limits. It's it's how do how does the player how does this work with the player, right? Um, and then working from that standpoint. Um, so yeah. The scripting system in Metroid that we came that Frank and I, and I worked on are pretty much limitless. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff in it. The best example is the power bomb maze, right? That's all done with the scripting system. Um, you know, there's a, you can build all kinds of crazy uh, puzzles. There's a maze in Metroid Two, I think, where you're fighting a little boss and it's the morph ball maze. And there's a little guy. I forget the name of the boss. It's like a little slug guy. You have to bomb uh, around and stuff like that. Is it Spider Ball? Spider Ball Guardian. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. a that's basically a big 2D combat maze on the wall you're fighting with your morph ball. And that's all done just with the scripting system. You know, it's it's like really cool. And that, I, I didn't actually work on that. Most of the designers built that themselves. I had a couple of little bugs to fix with it, but um So know. from a from a scripting standpoint, was there something in particular that just took you ages to get right? So the first the first room we scripted once i got the scripting system mostly complete was the um, bowling system with the the turn i forget the name of that room um you know where the 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 chozo statue picks you up and throws you in through the thing oh uh, yes yep yeah and uh that was one of the rooms one of the early designers came up one of the first designs came up with because they wanted this concept of you know the statue pushing bowling you um and so, because uh, we had we had a, a bunch of room designs on paper at that point, you know that they had spec'd out. Uh, so I picked that one because that one's like that one looks really hard. Let's do that one first, because we can pull that off, then we can do the other ones. Yeah. And so I spent probably a month getting wow. that room working, um, just because it showed me the limitations of the scripting system. And what's funny is is the scripting system you're placing these objects. So like, you know. Um, the, the trigger for you when you drop into, into the into the hands of the statue, there's a trigger there that activates when you're a morph ball for it, and then it grabs it. And then that sends a message to the uh, to the object controller to start the animation of you bowling. And then that sends a message to to hook you up to a spline to move you down. And then when you're released, there's another object that gives you an impulse. You know, it's all scripted up. So when I finished scripting that room and had all, you know, and that room has, you know, the three bomb slots up top, there's a lot of stuff going on in there, you know. Um, there was like 300 objects in that room. So if you load it in the editor, it was just a sea of objects. <laughs> and it was, it was like, this is kind of getting untenable. So um, I approached the tools guys and said, hey, can we do some sort of like Photoshop layer system? And they said, sure. And so we implemented the ability to place objects on different photo- like layers and you could toggle them on and off. And so and then I reorganized the room. So like, you know, like when you get bold, there's a cinematic camera that comes back and follows you as you get bold and all that. So that's, so I created a cinematic layer and that's where I put the cinematic systems. And then, you know, a layer that controls the, 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 the impulses for the ball along the track. And, and once that was organized, then you load the room and then you just turn on the stuff you're interested in. Cause it, it, we realized that without that control 
and ability to filter objects, it would just, rooms would just get full of stuff, right? Because you have so many objects, you know, like I said, like for that bowling sequence, you have a cinematic set of objects, which is probably four or five objects to control the camera and the spline and all that stuff. You've got the impulse stuff for the ball. You've got the trigger for the ball. You've got the object controlling the statue animation, right? You've oh got um, object, and then, you know, and when you go up top and you bomb the slots, that rotates the centerpiece to the, I think there's three positions. And so the, you know, when you bomb that, it sends a message to the object controller, which then tells another object, rotate this object 90 degrees over this period of time. <laughs> Right. So, you know, and you can just imagine it's just a crazy amount of objects and why it took me a month to build that room. And so once we got the layers in, then they, they made it, it was, and it actually worked really well because once we had the layers in, we got those pretty early because we knew that was a thing. And then I started handing off a lot of the cinematic type elements to one of the uh, effects artists um, who was, who wanted to do camera work. Uh, so he did a lot of the save station. I did like the first couple save station cinematics, and then he did the later ones, which are better than mine. <laughs> He's a better camera guy than I am. Um, uh, because, and then he would just create a cinematic layer in the room, do his camera work, get the spline set up and all the camera transitions. And then, you know, then that, you know, the save station would just send a message out saying save started. And then that would activate the cinematic camera. And then he, that would send the messages to do same as to do the animation and all that stuff. And so that was on a separate layer. And then he could just copy that to other rooms and make tweaks and stuff like that. Right, so. right. And I uh, heard that infinite ball uh, bomb jumping was stopped because some rooms have no ceilings. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you I'd... did you think about putting like invisible ceilings or something, or was it just clearly a nah, we're not doing it? I don't know the decision on that. I think so. The collision. So what's interesting, like I said, I mentioned we made we made the room these blue rooms, which are just blueprint textures, and then the artist drew them. The collision volume is actually separate from the visual geometry. So what you're colliding oh. against is actually a different set of planes. And so the collision geometry was almost almost usually just the blue room geometry itself, which could convert it into collision geometry, and then the artist would paint. And so a lot of times there was no geometry. It was built in 3D Studio Max at Maya. So there's no geometry in the ceiling. There's just no triangles up there. <laughs> so that's why you can fly out. Um, we could put a ceiling in. Um, but again, it's, it's one of those things that kind of breaks immersion. Like if some reason you could launch yourself up, if you bomb that high and you just hit an artificial ceiling, that's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I also, I think infinite bomb jumping would break a lot of puzzle design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, and. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's lots of crazy sequence breaking in, in Metroid or in Metroid Prime already, uh, which which amazes me that it that it doesn't blow the game up sometimes. Because um, when when we did the Photoshop layer thing, we also did what's called uh, master layers, and so a good example is you know you, you go you defeat Flagra, you pick up the gravity suit or the various suit, and then you leave, and then when you come back, there's a couple of ghosts there. Those are what's called master layers. They define what's inside a room. And they change based on, you know, when you pick up a suit, we change the master layer in that room. So that's why some rooms have different enemies later on in the game. Uh, if you sequence break, you can get the master layers confused about which ones are on or off. And there, uh, speedrunners probably know this, but there are ways that if you sequence break in a certain order, you can get some rooms to load all of their master layers at the same time or on a memory crash. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the reason we don't, we the reason... Uh, like uh, the first Metroid shipped and then there was a couple sequence breaks that could crash the game because of this problem. And I put a couple door locks on the later version, the 1.02 version that shipped on the second pressing. 
And the speedrunners were like, why did you put those locks in? And I'm like, yeah. because you, if you got the stuff out of order, you could blow the game up. Like, it's not that I wanted to break sequence breaking. It's just, you know, the game should never crash. Right. So a lot of those locks were done because of that. Um, it sometimes feels like a sequence breakers are trying to crash the game. <laughs> they're, well, they're, they're trying to find a way to, they're generally the sequence breaking is done for speed reasons. Right. And um, there are lots of ways to crash the game. If you're like speed running or jumping out of the environment and, you know, it, what amazes me is like the crazy thing is speedrunners that get out of the environment and know where the load triggers are for the rooms that I placed. Yeah. And they'll wiggle themselves around to hit the load <laughs> trigger that I that I lit, I put that trigger there to load the next room because otherwise if they don't hit that trigger the, the room won't be there when they get there you know crazy stuff like that um, and what's funny is speedrunners probably know sequence sequence breaks that will break the game still and they just avoid that because they you know you, you crashing the game is not a speed run mm. <laughs> So <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose the trigger system would be the reason why enemies respawn, right? Because you like, uh, if, enemies. If, yeah. If well, enemies respawn because the, the, the yeah, yeah the room got unloaded. Yeah. Right. So if you go if you go if you're in an area and you go in the hallway and you get far enough in that you this one gets unloaded, the next one gets unloaded, and then you go back, we just have to load that room back in. That's why everything respawns. Oh so wow. Just, yeah. There's there's some rooms that don't get unloaded until like. There's some air rooms that are small enough that you can go through the hallway and go to this room here, and it hasn't unloaded this room just because it's small enough, maybe. And sometimes you'll come back, the, the enemies won't be there. Sometimes you have to go two rooms and then come back. But yeah, it's just, it's just, we just, the state of the room stays until we unload it. So, with the amount of tools that are available now, would it still have to be applied the same way if you were to make, if you would make the game today? Or would you be able to load multiple rooms at once? Taking into account obviously HD graphics and all of it, all of that stuff, and the I think I think I don't think that the, it's changed. Game consoles still have X amount of memory, and HD means you're using eight X as much memory for the same area, right? Because textures are that much higher res. Mm. Um, I think you'd still want to. You'd still probably have to do load systems. A good example is um, the new Jack and Daxter game, Rift Apart. They, whenever you go through those portals, they're actually loading those levels. Those are all streaming in. It's just the PlayStation Five is incredibly fast at streaming because of the SSD. Right. Right. And so it just takes a second or two. Right. But those yeah. those are all streamed in. Those are their levels are huge and detailed and beautiful, and probably take multiple gigabytes of memory. Right. So it yeah. just scales. You know, I'm still amazed that the 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 you know, Metroid, of course, was a standard def game. So it was 320 by 200 uh, resolution, 240 in, in um, progressive. So 320 by 240. And um, we only had 24 megs on the, on the GameCube, right? Yeah. So, and I think, I think four megs of it, it was eaten up by the code. And so we had 20 megs left for everything else. Um, I think the Samus model herself is a good meg or so. She's, she's pretty detailed. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, I remember areas being about four to five megs, I think, is their general size. Some of the bigger ones are, can be up to like 10. Um, but, uh, you know, but you've got stuff, everything there, all the, all the objects and the sound and everything and the stuff in there. So memory management was a huge, huge job on the game. And we did a lot of work. Uh, I wrote a lot of different code to handle memory and different, all the engineers had to be very memory conscious. So, yeah. and there, there are other little things like um, one of the, one of the things we realized is when 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 you know we shoot a door and they're loading the area behind it, 
So the, you know, the area is streaming in and then we have to decompress it. And after we decompress it, we have to go through and set up all the objects, like all the objects set up their state and get ready. And we noticed that when the, the area was finished loading and then we would go, oh, okay, we'll go prepare the area to load. We'd get a good three to four frame skip, right? Cause it's doing all this work of decompressing and all this stuff, right? And so there'd be a big hitch in the game. And so we, we realized we had to break it up. So the, the decompressor was modified to do it in little pieces over a few frames. And then as the room sets up, we would go through and set the room up over the next few frames. So after the room's loaded, it's actually probably a, another 10 to 20 frames at 60 Hertz, you know, so another, you know, second or so to set up everything in the room. So even after we're loaded. Hello to all my fellow gamers. This episode of Kiwi Talks is proudly brought to you by Manscaped. And I'm here to talk to you about the performance package 4.0. Voila. And I'm going to start with the most obvious one, the Lawnmower 4.0, which is essential for all you gamers that sit there for like seven hours a day just gaming. Because what's going to happen is your balls are going to get sweaty and those hairs are going to start sticking to your undies. And when you sit up, it's going to hurt. Not anymore with the Lawnmower 4.0 because you can reduce all those ingrown hairs. And this is smooth as silk, I tell you. Smooth as silk. Can't recommend this enough. And then on top of that, just for even better hygiene, you can use the Crop Preserver and Reviver, a cream and a deodorant to make your balls smell heavenly. Can't recommend it enough. And on top of that, we also have the Weed Whacker, which you can use to reduce all those hairs in your nostrils and in your ears. And if that wasn't enough, we have jockeys and a travel bag as well. This great package is available at manscaped.com. Just use the code KiwiTalks for 20% off plus free shipping. Yeah, because like say uh, with the Quadraxis boss in Prime 2, that's a massive room. That's and a then, huge room. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge room. And then obviously you beat the boss and it triggers platforms to rise. And then if you go out of one of the rooms and you come back, enemies then spawn as well. So even Yeah, that's a master the, layer swange. Yeah, change. yeah, yeah. So like even something like that would take a whole lot of time, I'm sure. Yeah. Because I, I yeah. suppose, I mean, would that be the biggest room out of the two games, out of Prime One and Two? That particular. I think. Room? I think in, in size, but I think in memory, I still think it's the the Chozo the Temple. Yeah. Artifact Temple. Yeah. I th- I just remember being that that we had to do some work to make sure we had everything like enough memory to load that one. Because <laughs> it's got the it's got that big vista, and then there's a lot of stuff in there, right? There's all the artifacts. There's Redly. There's you know, there's the end game cutscene is in there. Yeah, everything is in there, right? <laughs> so, because well, in, in Prime Two, because uh, you can fall off cliffs, right? You know, yeah. if you fall off a cliff and then you respawn. Yeah, like, how, how, is that easy to script? I mean, did you how? What was yeah, the yeah. There's just, there's, just, just, that? there's basically just a big trigger down there. When you when you do it, we just you know teleport you back up, essentially. Like, our, you know, you're bad. Here, you come back. <laughs> so was that always so, the, 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 um, the discussion, like trying to work out what would happen when, when she falls? Was it just a, yeah, always going to yeah. be a respawn? Yeah. Just a yeah. Respawn. Uh, and I think that came out because of the, the boost cannons. Um, because oh, we right. were, yeah, of course. Yeah. Cause you know, if you miss, poof. <laughs> we didn't want to just kill you. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Game over. No, no, no. So we put you back. And then that turned into, they realized, hey, that's a pretty good mechanic, you know, because players can miss their, especially with a space jump, right? There's just these huge gaps you have to make it across. You miss, miss time your jump, bloop. And so 
you know, the design was just like, okay, you know, I think we, we do damage you a little bit if I remember right, but we do put you back. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. If you fall off a massive height, you don't lose any damage, but if you fall off the cliff, you lose a little bit of damage. Yeah. Yeah. But that, yeah, that, that makes sense. Hmm. That's fascinating. Because you um also you didn't play Super Metroid until you got allocated to the team, right? You'd never played it. That that is that is correct. So uh the nineties for me is I played a lot of Street Fighter too. I was I used to play the pro level and stuff like that. Yeah, and uh, you know, I used to have every weekend uh, all the guys I used to play at the local arcade. I was in Vancouver at the time, and every weekend everybody would come to our, my place and we had a we actually took Super Nintendo controllers, ripped them apart. Went to the local arcade operator place, bought arcade joysticks and buttons, built our own boxes, and built arcade joysticks by soldering them to the SNES controller, so we could play Street <laughs> Fighter Two on the Super <laughs> Nintendo with arcade controls. And so, you know, and then I became friends with a lot of people at the arcade. All the people who played a lot, and they'd all come to our house, and we built controllers together and play every weekend. So yeah, I played a lot of Street Fighter in the in the nineties. So I kind of missed the whole Super Nintendo train because for me, the Super Nintendo device was a Street Fighter device. Street Fighter device, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, it wasn't, and so I kind of missed the whole Metroid train and it wasn't, you know, I, I originally got hired at Retro to work on Thunder Rally, which was the car combat game yeah. back in, in when things were getting started. Um, and, uh, you know, once the reorg happened, um, that was complicated and messy. Um, I got got assigned to Metroid, and I'm like, well, I could probably play this Super Metroid game since we're making kind of a sequel to it. And just like, holy crap, I missed this game. This game's incredible. I played through it twice in like three days. Like, just wow. loved it, you know. And just like, okay, now I understand why people want this game, you know. And uh, and did you try and yeah. sequence break it? No, no, just played through regularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember tried what... to, you tried to put it in the game, didn't you? You tried to put it into Metroid Prime, but because it was a third-party license, Nintendo. Yeah, like, so no. so I I ported a SNES emulator to the GameCube, and had actually running, uh, just to, just you know just for fun, and you know and then the you know talked, hey, could could we make this a thing? And they were like, I don't know, we could ask. And so we asked, and then you know, Nintendo was like, "Well, that's third-party code and a bunch of other stuff." So they kind of kiboshed that. But it started the idea churning, and they eventually they did have the NES uh, emulation library mm. that they had they had built for the GameCube, and so that turned into bringing the original Metroid into the game with the Game Link, with Fusion. So, so while Super Nin Super Metroid itself wasn't embedded in the game, that kind of created the idea, and ended up with putting the original Metroid in the game. The, NES emulator. I remember. I remember when we got the emulator code from Nintendo. It was a little challenging to implement because all the comments were in Japanese. <laughs> so we're like, hmm. So I've never well, seen did, Japanese C code before, so it was kind of interesting. Did Tanabe maybe know what it what it meant? Could he translate? Uh, sure. It? We yeah, we think yeah. it translated. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, what does this comment mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, you had to set up your editor the right code page so you could read the Japanese characters. Because I mean, if you learn a regular, regular, you know, American text editor, it's just a bunch of high bit character nonsense, right? Yeah, so you yeah. have to set the right character set or file set or whatever to actually read the the kanji. So it was always fun. But anyway, it, it worked. The great thing is once we integrated the Metroid, um, or not the Metroid, the NES emulator. Uh, Nintendo did. Man, they did a really great job on that. That even emulated the flickering from the original NES. 
like because Nanez had a certain amount of sprites he could display. Yeah. There are parts of Metroid where you have too many things, things will flicker. And they they duplicated that. Like they duplicated that hardware exactly. So pretty, pretty impressive job, actually. Yeah. How close did you work with um Tanabe? Uh so I worked on him on some of the like the incinerator drone we t- we tuned together. I remember having the conversation with him because the incinerator drone, it, its sequence is not predictable. Like when it does a fire blast, it's a, I think a random between five and eight seconds. And right. I remember having a conversation with him about, you know, he said, it's random. Is that a good thing? And I remember having a conversation that I wanted to encourage the players to be reactive and, uh, uh, and that if it was a fixed sequence, then replays would not be as interesting. Mm. And so he, you know, so I convinced him of that actually. Um, so I worked with him on the Zero drone. I think I worked with him. On, so I designed some of the phase on mines areas. So uh, I did the, there's that, there's that room, which is very vertical and has a big window at an angle. I built that room. So, um, and then I worked with some, him with some of the design of the encounters in there. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was great to work with. Brilliant, brilliant designer. Hmm. So was there anything that, tra- like Portal 2, for example, because I know you worked a little bit on multiplayer with that, right? Was there any yeah, crossover, I did, I did, crossover between I did. Prime and Portal in terms of... So I, didn't, I did not work on any of Portal 2's design. I, uh, for the multiplayer, I just did the multiplayer network programming. Oh, so I right. did like kind of did the lobby system, you know, how you hook up with players and the actual like moving the bits between the two different players and all that stuff. So I did the actual implementation of that. So I was not directly involved with any of the puzzle designs or anything like that. Um, you know, uh, cause portal two was actually, I think being developed while I was working on Dota at the time. Cause I was mm. a senior uh, engineer on Dota. I Dota two, I did all the, the server work on Dota two, the replay system, all the crazy stuff like that. So that was my primary focus. So portal two was just kind of a little side gig to get the multiplayer working for co-op so mm. um it was great because one of, one of the benefits of not being directly involved with the portal 2 team is I, I i purposely kind of avoided them until they were mostly done with the game so i could play it and enjoy it <laughs> well yeah that's right i suppose if, if you're in the trenches and you're building it then you probably yeah. see all the flaws and it's hard for you to appreciate it the way someone else would yeah like playing prime today is still kind of weird to me because like i know how how you know i know how the sausage was built <laughs> and so it's a little weird to play sometimes like oh yeah i remember doing that and oh yeah this thing and, you know and <laughs> some of the crazy tricks we had to do to make some things work so mm. but uh it's still a fun game i mean still you know i haven't played for, for a long time i remember when we were we were getting a few days from gold and so we were all just kind of play testing right because we we're just waiting for final bugs and stuff to come through and so i was i remember trying to speed run it you know, at that time. And I think I got three and a half hours was my best run. Wow. It's pretty good. Which is pretty good, I think. Um, you know, nowadays people do it in like an hour, which is crazy. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and it's just because, just you know, I, I played through the game probably 30, 40 times before, you know, we were done. So, um, but it was fun. And, and every playthrough was just super fun. You know, we knew we built something amazing. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see like Prime Four and how much they still keep and retain a lot of the stuff that you implemented from the first game. So, so I, what's interesting, you know, I left, um, I left uh, during the early development of Prime Three. I was a little bit burned out on Metro at that point. I mean, yeah, fair I, I love the games, but I gave a lot of myself in those games. Like 
the the work schedule for Prime and Prime Two was pretty brutal. Um, you know, I was working hundred hour weeks on Prime One at, at the the heyday there for months, and yeah. it, was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, I was looking for something else. But um, uh, what was the question again? The oh, we're <laughs> we're about Prime Four and how much they retain. Oh, the original. So 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 of what when you did. after Prime Three shipped, and I heard to the grapevine that they working on Donkey Kong Country. And I'm like, I'm thinking about, man, the scripting systems I built, they can, and the camera systems that Mark built can be totally leveraged for a Donkey Kong game. Hmm. So I assume they just used all those systems to build Tropical Freeze, you know, because like those, the, the, their generic scripting and camera systems, they would have been perfect for building a game like that. And I remember talking to some of the, you know, meeting some of the devs later on uh, there I hadn't seen in a while. And they were like, one of the challenges of building Donkey Kong was in Metroid, when you're designing an area, you're like, okay, so CMS is in this room. This is, this is the lore of the room. This is what she's getting here and everything, you know? And so you were putting Chozo lore on the walls and a lot of the art is influenced by that and everything. In Donkey Kong, no, he just needs to get to the end level to get some bananas. There's not really any lore to it, right? And they say that's actually a big change of mindset when you're designing a level. Yeah. So it was fun hearing them talk about that. Well, they still but, implemented some cool camera systems. So I wonder yeah. how much of that was based on uh, your work and Mark Hay Hutchinson's almost camera. Entire, almost certainly based on Mark's work. Yeah. So um, the, uh, you know, because like I said, we had many different camera systems. There was a service camera, the spindle camera. There were, you know, camera arc systems. There's all kinds of different ways you could do it. So I'm certain that I was all leveled. Um, I actually miss a lot of the engine we built to the the retro engine we built for making the Metroid games. Uh, just the systems we built could, could be used to lever to build all kinds of crazy, game, awesome games. Yeah. And you know, when I move into other game systems or engines, you know, I've worked on. You know, I worked on WoW and I worked on the Source Engine and stuff like that. And, you know, some of it's missing and some of it's different. And, you know, I'm like, I, I do. One thing I did miss is just the whole camera systems that Mark built. Like, they were just so easy to use and, and so incredibly powerful. So, so it, it would be safe to assume they'd still use the same engine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they wouldn't move to Unreal or anything. They'd probably just uh, still, still use the yeah, same. Yeah, although it's probably getting a little dated now. Um, I mean, it's been two decades, um, so the basis is probably still there. So they probably have to rewrite the renderer at this point because the renderer was definitely specific to the GameCube hardware. So I imagine they'd have to plug in a new renderer, which they could they could effectively grab something like Unreal or Unity and use its renderer and use the scripting system from Rude in that. Uh... They could even do do a hybrid like that. That's even possible. I don't know what they're doing, but there's lots of different ways you could approach it. Yeah, yeah, of um, course, of course. So um, what was the reason you retired? Just burnout, over crunch, stupid hours? <laughs> um, well, I've been, I've been working continuously for 32 years, right? My first game shipped in January 1990. Um, I started working on it in late 89. That is uh, a long the, time, yeah. Yeah, um, it was uh, the PC version of the board game Stratego licensed by Milton Bradley. <laughs> so uh, I was doing the PC version, the... Uh, the original engineer was actually building the Mac version. And so he was the one that actually built the AI and everything. So I was just doing the PC port of that for a small uh, game developer in Vancouver called uh, Mindspan. It was like, I think four guys at the company. I was one of them. Yeah. And so it was a license from Accolade to do the port. And uh, so that was my first game that shipped back in January, 1990. 
and you know been wor- working on games after that. We worked on I worked on Joe Montana football and a couple other titles there, and uh, then moved to and then I actually uh, moved to uh, one of the first internet companies in Vancouver called MindLink because this is like 1991, 92. Wow! And so internet was just starting to become a thing, and so I spent uh, four years there working on one of the first internet providers. Which was run and back then it all ran on Unix, right? So because you know Windows yeah, yeah. did not, you didn't use Windows for running internet stuff. And so I learned, I learned how I learned how to work on Unix, uh, and you know Linux was just becoming a thing then, and uh, internet stuff. So I learned internet protocols and networking, um, and then that company, you know, eventually that company got bought by one of the first internet companies uh, called iStar, and I moved to Ottawa where their corporate office was, and this is in '96, and then Quake came out. And changed everything, <laughs> you know. And I was, awesome. I love capture the flag love, mod, awesome. Yeah, and then I made three wave capture the flag. And next thing I know, a few months later, I'm working for ID, and you know, and you know, because I had experience from the internet provider days of doing multiplayer network programming and uh, Unix stuff. You know, I became the multiplayer and network and Linux guy for ID. You know, and so I did the Linux ports of you know Quake World and. Quake two and Quake three and all that stuff and, and as well as three wave CTF so that was always fun. So when you say you didn't take any time off, do you mean that you literally never took any time off during? Not really. Time? The only break uh, like I only ever had Christmas breaks sort of thing. Christmas or... breaks and you know occasional you know week here or there for a family vacation or something, but never really anything. The only longest break I took is in 2012. I took a three month break at Valve. Uh, that was after I think Left 4 Dead two shipped, or no. Dota, yeah, Left 4 Dead 2 had shipped and Dota was in some development and I, I just needed a break. So I took a three-month sabbatical at the end of 2012. But that's the only long break I'd ever taken. And so I've been continuously employed for 32 years. And honestly, I just I just wanted to step back for a bit and, you know, well, fair take enough. a break. You know, it's been it's been a hell of a ride. <laughs> I've, oh. worked, I've, I've worked with so many amazing people and so many amazing games. It's just been an incredible um you know a career and just the the most the memorable parts of the people just mm. just incredible people you know uh that i loved working with you know and just seeing some of the creativity people can do to come together and build something i mean one of the things for me the biggest fun of game development is when you finish the game give it to people and you watch them play and you see how much they enjoy it, see how much they love it. That is what it's all about, right? Mm. Bringing entertainment to people, giving, seeing, giving them an incredible experience and a good time, you know, and, and just fun, have fun. And, you know, that to me is just the, the moment. And that's why I love shipping games. Like it was funny because when I was at Valve, Valve is very flat and everything, but I kind of, I kind of, you know, like I got, I worked on all kinds of stuff. Like I, I did a little work on Counter-Strike. I did a little work on Portal 2. I did a little bit of work on like Steam VR, Steam VR Home, um, because as those projects were nearing uh, shipping, they would grab me to come finish it to ship. I was known as, as a finisher. It's like, if you want to ship, grab Zoid because he, he loves shipping things. <laughs> <laughs> so, which I do. I mean, I love getting that, getting stuff into people's hands. Hmm. Yeah. So. so so given how you worked relentlessly for so long, when you did take a step back, was it jarring or hard for you to do to kind of take a step back because you're always like this? 
always on the go? Was Actually, like- not too, too well. I prop so I just what I did is is you know being the focused person that I did, I literally made a list of here's the games I want to play that I haven't played before. Here's the TV <laughs> shows I want to watch. And I've literally been going through the list. You know, I got I never watched Breaking Bad, so I went and watched that. I'm watching Titans right now on Netflix because that's the current next one on my list. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I played through uh Undertale. I played through um a bunch of different games over the last little while. Um just to to finish to go through inscription I played you recently loved it you know so I've actually I've actually just changed that energy into a different area of of enjoying a lot of this a lot of gaming and and TV and stuff like that um, I've also been working on my home arcade I love classic games so I've been buying a lot of the arcade one up cabinets and modding them and building a home arcade you know um, I just finished putting together their pong cabinet which is a really cool cocktail. Um, and uh, so I've been, that's my current project is to build that home arcade. Um, you know, I have, I have, I have a room that dedicated my little home arcade room. So um, just channeling that energy into new, new stuff, you know? Um, and I've enjoyed it so far. I mean, it's been six months. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm still, I'm only in my fifties. So, you know, they're never say never. You can always see, you know, maybe there's a game project in the future. We'll see. Right now, I'm enjoying the break. It's yeah, been, well, you look nice... you look happy. You're yeah. you're glowing, so that's good. <laughs> you got that high energy, so that's good to see. <laughs> so, um, if anyone wants to follow you, keep up to date with anything, what's the best way to do that? Is Twitter the best way to do it? I think Twitter is probably. I think Twitter is probably the the best way. I actually, you know, post on Twitter occasionally these days, and. Seems to be becoming the platform. I mean, it's long cry from the plan files we had back in the id software <laughs> days. But yeah, Twitter. I'm I'm at Zoid CTF at Twitter because Zoid was taken, of course. But yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, uh, is, and you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So yeah. if any you know, any people in the industry can always connect with me there. So yeah, I love your little rants on Twitter about NFTs. By the way, <laughs> Just, they they always give me a laugh. Ah, <laughs> uh, the the. <laughs> <laughs> there's cool tech there but it's being used in incredibly abusive ways right now mm, mm. You know, that's technology um, isn't it <laughs> yeah um i guess but the the problem is there's no breaks on this right now mm. right it's just people are being exploited just hugely right now and it's getting grifted and 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 all that stuff and it's it's really bothers me um and so uh and the whole nfts and gaming thing like oh what was it uh the lincoln park guy was like yeah i want an nft so i can have a skin that works in minecraft and halo and everything and all the game devs are like you're crazy dude there's no way that works like you know i remember when you know when i think some game shipped and we wanted to put a hat in team fortress 2 to celebrate the launch on the game on steam that takes that take you know an artist has to spend a few days building the hat we have to get a licensing deal worked out with the publisher of the game that's launching I mean, you're talking man, man, probably man weeks of work just to make a hat and work in one other game. And you weren't talking about a skin that works across multiple games, dude. That's just this is not going to happen, like <laughs> yeah. physically, you know. And um, and from a from a name standpoint, like from ownership standpoint, what's the difference between an NFT and a row in a database table that tells you you own the object, which is what we do today, right? Yeah, like yeah. When you buy an, when you buy an item in Dota Two, like a cosmetic, there's a database row that says you own this cosmetic, right? So, an NFT is just a really 
environmentally expensive version of that. <laughs> yeah, I could I could rant for DF- yeah, yeah, NFT yeah. for a long time. So. <laughs> well, uh, hey, I, I appreciate you taking time out uh, from your gaming time and television time, I'm sure, uh, oh, yeah. to do this. So, uh, yeah, I very much appreciate it. Thank you. It's been it's been fun talking about, you know, building an amazing game and the people I worked with. You know, like I said, it's just we I missed that team. There was mm. just some incredible people. And of course, unfortunately, a few of us have left us. Mm. You know, Mark Hutch and, and the late Andy O'Neill, which Andy were both O'Neil. incredible people to work with, you know, and uh, I don't think I'll ever work with a team that amazing again. You know? It was a very special team with a certain yeah. caliber of uh, individual that. Yeah, it can't be replicated. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah. No. Yeah, amazing group. Love yeah. It. Well, you've got an amazing legacy. I mean, you Thank could you. easily, I could easily talk to you for eight hours about every <laughs> single game <laughs> that you've worked on, but I won't. Um, but uh, so that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And uh, until next time, stay safe.